Mighty God, we thank you that you have pardoned us of sin, iniquity, guilt, shame, as you laid it upon your son on Calvary 2,000 years ago, just as the prophets foretold, just as Israel hoped for the arrival of Messiah, and that it was your plan to reach the world, that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed, and that unique seed is indeed your son, our Savior Jesus Christ, who bore your wrath on that day, but not to remain in the grave, but to burst forth in victory, conquering sin and death on our behalf, pardoning us, forgiving us as you have. We are grateful and thankful and desire to live lives that reflect such love, such compassion, such mercy, and such grace. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would now impart to us the ability to see what is before us this morning in the text that we will look at together. Enable me by your grace to communicate this divine truth with power from on high to edify the saints and to bring to salvation Lord, anyone who's here who has not embraced you by faith, repenting and believing upon you and you alone for their salvation. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, again, good morning. And if you would, um, turn in your Bibles to Matthew, the 28th chapter. As we'll look at the glory of Resurrection Sunday together. Well, it's Sunday morning, and as Christians, we rejoice because we know the whole story. Christ died. Christ has risen victoriously. And we have the hope, because He's ascended and He rules and He reigns, that he will indeed return in glory. And that for the believer, to die before his return is to be with him in glory. He's granted us eternal life by grace through faith. But on this particular Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, there was a group of followers, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't have the whole story. They were gripped with fear. They didn't know what to believe. They were a hopeless group. The last thing they heard was that the one that they had placed their faith and hope in had died by way of crucifixion. A horrendous way to die, as we looked at Friday night. And according to Jewish law, uh, the body of an executed criminal might not be left hanging all night, but had to be buried by sundown. The Jews knew what the Decalogue declared. The Jews knew what Deuteronomy declared. If a man has committed 
a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So you know the story that Joseph of Arimathea, a senior member of the Sanhedrin, he had become a secret believer in the Lord Jesus Christ during the time of his ministry. And his secret faith on this, that Friday evening, was no longer a secret. But he embraced by faith with both hands the one he placed his faith in. He asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Seeing that crucified criminals would normally be thrown in the refuse dump southwest of the city of Jerusalem. The place that Jesus referred to is where the fire always burns. And Joseph, and according to John's gospel, Nicodemus both buried the body of Jesus, laying him on a stone slab in Joseph's tomb. And Joseph was the rich man who had hewn out of stone a tomb, fulfilling Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Once again, scripture fulfilled, time and time and time again. So the burial of Jesus then, beloved, becomes part of the gospel as the burial itself attests to the reality of his death. Jesus literally died. He had to die. He did not merely appear to die. Jesus did not swoon, as some proclaim, that is, to fall into a deep state, uh, comatose state. He died. So the burial of Jesus is part of the gospel also because it indicates the bodily nature of the resurrection. This was no hallucination. This was no resuscitation. He literally died. The man who died and was buried is the man who would be raised and seen by over 500 eyewitnesses. So... This is an objective supernatural event that reversed the process of decomposition. The body of Jesus was both raised and changed. Transformation. Your body, when the Lord comes back, when you're given a glorified body, your body, it will be a different body. It will be fit for eternity. It will be fit to live on this earth, a resurrected earth, a rejuvenated earth, a perfect earth for eternity. Can you wait? I can't wait. I'm tired, man, of my sin. I can't wait for the day. Jesus' bodily resurrection is the prototype of the resurrection of all who place their faith and trust in Christ alone. They don't believe that Jesus is one of many ways. They believe he's the only way because of the faith granted them to believe that glorious truth. So what we witness on this Sunday morning is the resurrection of the promised one, fulfilled. Jesus' body would not see corruption as the prophets declared. Acts 2.24 said, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then he takes us back to Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. 
So let's turn to the first few verses of Matthew chapter 28 and see how God now intensifies the preparation of vindication for his son. It's intensified because in this passage, God's confirmation of Jesus' person, all of his claims, all of his work is greatly intensified. The the, the father in this passage continues to lay the groundwork for the disciples, his beloved disciples, who at this point are hiding out, gripped by fear. That they will have certain belief in his resurrection. That they will embrace this reality, the resurrection of their Lord Jesus Christ, because it's going to be central to gospel proclamation. And if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If Jesus has not raised from the dead, there's no reason to be here on this Easter morning or any Sunday morning for that matter. But if he's risen from the dead, beloved, we best take heed to who he is and what he declared while he was here. We'll all say amen to that. Okay, notice Matthew 28 Beginning in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Imagine that. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Notice first, Matthew, the author draws your attention to the extraordinary events and circumstances that are surrounding the resurrection. He doesn't give a detailed account of what happened in the resurrection, but what happens around the resurrection. On Friday, we looked at the text and we see that there is no uh, heavy detail with regard to the crucifixion, but what is provided for us is that which is going on around the crucifixion. There was no long, detailed discussion of what, actually, what it actually meant for Jesus to be physically crucified. And Matthew seems to point us to things going on around the resurrection as well. So here again, his first point is to the extraordinary occurrence going on around this tomb. And by the time we get to the resurrection, it's already occurred. Just some grave cloths left inside, as John tells us. A head cloth and a body cloth. So it's an after-the-fact account that we look at this morning. Matthew points us first to the events and then to the angel and then to the angel's message and then to the encounter between the Lord himself and these ever-faithful women. 
Praise God for women in the church. Faithful to the core. Notice verses 1 through 4, you see the first section of the passage. We see the vindication of the Christ, which is in your outline. Verses 5 through 7, you see the second section of the passage, the visitation of the angel. We know by the other gospel accounts that there were two angels, actually, but in this text there's only one that's talking, so we're going to refer to him as an angel. Verses 8 through 10 from the third section, uh, we see uh, the validation of the promise. And notice first that God vindicates his own son. Verses 1 through 4, these faithful, loving females' disciples here, they witness these signs that God has done something extraordinary at the tomb. And throughout this passage, what God is doing is not only vindicating his son, beloved, but he's building a sure foundation for the faith of those who believe in him. All of the disciples, including these women in these last three days, have had their faith shaken to the core. I mean, imagine for three years following this man, supernatural power, supernatural miracles. He knows what people are thinking. Mighty, powerful, raising the dead. So the very fact that these women are on their way to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus indicates that they did not believe what he said about being raised from the dead. So their faith has gone through a crisis. And what we see, God here systematically lays the groundwork in order to strengthen their faith and in order to strengthen your faith this morning, 2,000 years later. Through his providence and the promises of Scripture. And that's what I want you to get out of this this morning. God is ever faithful providentially. Providence means provision. What he provides day by day to sustain you. Not just in life, but in faith. People, circumstances, events, along with the promise of Scripture. Because I think many of us, most of us, if not all of us, we sway to and forth, back and forth. We believe, we doubt. We believe, we don't believe. Perhaps you struggle with believing the promise that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, amen? I mean, you only have to live for so many years and go through so many trials to go, ay, ay, ay. Do, is this really going to work for the good? Amen? Let's be real. Come on, is right. Let's be real. It's this same story, this same reality, this resurrection from the dead that will or ought to increase your faith, sustain you. That's why we meet on Sunday mornings, because of the victory of Christ, resurrection from the dead. So here now, early on this Sunday morning, two of the Marys make their way to the tomb. Mark tells us that they were coming for the purpose of anointing the body of Jesus. Matthew tells us that they were coming to simply see the tomb. And that makes perfect sense. Because Matthew is the gospel writer to tell us that there were guards stationed at the tomb. There's no way to get into this tomb. This is a sealed tomb. There would be a cord from the stone to the face of the wall. And it would be covered in clay, and it would have the empire seal rolled in it. You touch it, you die. 
So Matthew knows that even, even if the Lord Jesus had been in the tomb, there was no way that these women were going to get inside to anoint the, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would have had to move the stone themselves. And above and beyond that, it would be against the opposition of Roman soldiers, the Navy SEALs of the day. They're not getting in the tomb. And in fact, the other gospel tells us that the women were asking one another as they made their way, who's going to remove the stone for us? So Matthew just emphasizes this fact that, you know, they're coming to see the tomb to behold the grave. They were there the night before. They watched Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus place the Lord's body in the tomb as they stood from afar. These are devoted women. These are loving women, loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were the last ones at the cross and the first ones at the tomb. Faithful. So they, they showed far more courage than the inner circle of the Lord. They had heard from the lips of Jesus that he was going to be raised again on the third day. And they didn't expect it to happen. They did not expect this to happen. So another theme that Matthew wants you to understand is that Jesus' own, own disciples, they're not expecting the resurrection either. They're hunkered down back in a home in fear, probably for their own lives. Now, the Sanhedrin at this point, the Jewish leaders of the day, are preparing to try to prevent a story about the resurrection. But his own disciples are demoralized at this point, not expecting the resurrection. In fact, in Matthew's account, the Sanhedrin, the religious hypocrites of the day, they give more credence to Jesus' prescription, prediction rather, about the resurrection than his own disciples. Look at chapter 28 here and verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Interesting. They feared it. They saw this man move in mighty ways. They saw that this man was fearless, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they feared that he may raise up. Nevertheless, these faithful women make their way to the tomb, and they're greeted by all these extraordinary events. It's going to grip their attention, and it's going to strengthen their faith. And I pray, and I have prayed, that it will grip your attention, believer, and strengthen your faith on this day, 2,000 years later. First of all, there's an earthquake. Now, in the Old Testament, earthquakes were connected with manifestations of the presence of God. And for the people of God, it was somewhat of a comfort. For the enemies of God, it was terrifying. Remember that the next time you're in an earthquake, if you're a believer. You can be comforted. God is in control. Amen? So I think we see a little bit of both here. Comfort and fear. So they, they approach, this earthquake occurs, 
That's the first extraordinary event that we see. The second thing that the eyes of these women see is the stone rolled back from the groove. This would be a very large stone. It was set in a groove. There was a block. You would remove the block and roll the stone down the groove in front of the, the opening of the tomb. And there's an angel sitting upon it. And the reason that the stone was moved back, beloved, was not to let Jesus out. Amen? It was not to let him out. If he raised from the dead, he doesn't need the stone removed to get out. This was to let the disciples in. This was to allow those that were his followers in to see that he had indeed risen from the grave. The son is free. And only those that are in Christ are free indeed. Amen. He doesn't need the stone rolled back. In verse 3, it's the dazzling appearance of this angel whose description was striking. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And think about this. This is only a reflection of the glory of God. We read in Revelation, when John sees an angel, he's terrified by the presence of an angel. Think about the presence of God in glory. This is reflected glory. And then in verse 4, you see the fourth extraordinary event. Stunned guards laying all over the place. Immobilized, petrified, terrified, stunned. They look as though they're dead men. Okay, The seal, the stone, and now the guards, all the devices that humans have established to end the Jesus movement, to end the claims of Christ, to end the message of the Lord, all of their pitiful attempts in securing the tomb, sealing it with the governor's seal, placing soldiers there, all for nothing. And let me tell you, beloved, if God is for you, who can be against you? Nobody. No thing. Not even your faithlessness. Nothing. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. People can fight and deny God all they want. But the creator always wins. God always wins. Men may fight God to the bitter end and they will lose. Unless they bow the knee to this king. To this Lord to this lamb who was slain in the place of creatures, only creatures who place their faith and trust in this creator. So the first people to behold the evidence are Jesus' enemies, the guards who've been placed there, and then the women, they see it. So the soldiers and the women are witnesses to the same facts, to the same reality. So we see here, beloved, that the problem of believing Jesus' resurrection is not based on one's lack of intellectual ability or credibility. The problem in believing the resurrection or not believing in the resurrection originates in another area. It's a refusal to bow the knee. It's hatred for God and a love for rebellion against God. So God continues by these accounts to strengthen our faith, to, to, to strengthen the faith of all disciples from throughout all time. The vindication of the Son, His resurrection is the Father's amen to Christ's words, it is finished. Remember the last words on the cross? It is finished. Sunday morning, the Father says, amen. Let it be. 
as you said, it is finished. He's the conquering hero. Notice next God's comforting words, visitation of the angel. He comforts these women through this angelic being. Verses 5 through 7, the angel speaks. He gives words of comfort. He, he makes an important announcement. He gives an exhortation to these faithful women early this Sunday morning. Matthew has just told us that the guards were paralyzed with fear. So the angel speaks deliberately here at this point to comfort the women. The first words out of his mouth, notice, do not be what? Afraid. We need not fear. No believer needs to fear. The guards have good reason to be afraid, amen? But to these women, he says, don't be afraid. Fear not. These women who had sufficiently trusted Jesus' promise that he would be raised. Something happened between then and now, this morning, to where they didn't believe. Or at least they didn't understand. Notice, though, there's no shadow of harsh rebuke to these women. The angel never, never gets close to a harsh rebuke. All he says is, I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. You know, he doesn't say, I can't believe you didn't believe. Shame on you for not believing. Even Jesus said to his disciples, oh, you of little what? You faith, you you faithless generation. But he loved them to the what? To the end. So he loves you in spite of you. He loves me in spite of me. Amen? Amen. He loves us, his church, his bride, in spite of us. The faith that we have is a gift from him in the first place. The ability we have to live out the faith with conviction is also gifted by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who enables us. So the closest thing to any rebuke in this passage, if you notice, he comes along to these godly, brokenhearted, brave, caring female disciples, and he tells them, About eight things that we'll look at quickly. But the closest thing to a a rebuke is really he's raised just as he said. Just a reminder, he's not here. Don't be afraid. They need to be assured. Because they're going to have to convince the disciples that he has indeed risen from the dead. This would have been a very discouraging thing. Now, women in this day... Um, a woman's testimony wasn't received in the court of law. Okay, women were looked down upon in the culture. So a woman's word really didn't mean much. But notice what Jesus does here. The first women to bear witness of the resurrection is a group that are hopeless and they're female and they're going to carry this on. So he says, fear not. I know who you're looking for. In other words, he's saying, I know precisely why you're here, and I'm here precisely for this purpose. I know who you're looking for. And I have a message that must be proclaimed. And then he begins to explain to them, thirdly, he says, just like he told you he wouldn't be here, he's not here. So the empty tomb is a wonderful testimony of the resurrection, uh, but the empty tomb is not all. He's raised from the dead. It's not just that his body isn't here. He has raised from the dead. He's resurrected. 
just as he told you so. He told you this would happen. This is not something that should surprise you, ladies. He said this, and he has indeed raised. And then he says, look inside. He shows us why the stone is rolled away. So that the the, the disciples might see the truth of the resurrection. The reality of the fact that he has risen from the dead. And then having looked, he says, go quickly, tell the disciples. So these women are commissioned to spread the word to the Lord's closest disciples. And they're going to become bearers of good news on this resurrection morning. Women, you should be encouraged by that. Then he says, he's going to go ahead of you to Galilee. Tell the disciples to go to Galilee just as he instructed them. You see here again the Lord's words of the past and a reminder of those words. What do we do here every week? We do not cease to remind you of what? These things, this truth, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that all things do work together for the good of those who love the Lord. What did Peter say when he writes the epistles? I do not cease to remind you of these things. Paul does the same thing. We need to be reminded, amen? We need to preach this truth to ourselves. As I've said before, you don't want to listen to yourself. You want to speak to yourself. Speak truth to yourself. Because if you listen to yourself long enough, you'd be curled up in the corner somewhere in deep depression. We speak the glorious truth of the gospel to our own failing hearts. He said he would go to Galilee before you. He will go to Galilee before you. Tell them to go. Now, if you remember when Jesus was leaving the upper room on the night that he was betrayed making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 32, he explicitly said to his disciples, when I'm raised again, I will meet you at the designated place in Galilee. That's where the ministry began. So now the angel is saying, go to that place just like he told you. He'll meet you there. So Matthew, it's interesting, makes a great deal out of the fact that Jesus' ministry began in Galilee. Matthew calls Jesus, according to the words of the prophets, a Nazarene. That is, people call him a Nazarene, someone from Galilee. Can any good thing come out of what? Nazareth? We found the Lord. We found the promised one. He's from Galilee. He's from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But he fulfills Isaiah 9. Look at it. Isaiah 9, verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time, but he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Fulfilled. Messiah out of Galilee? Now, Galilee is so important to Matthew because it it symbolizes Galilee of the Gentiles. The fact that Jesus is not going to be Savior of the ancient God of people alone, but he's going to be Savior of the world, Gentiles included, will come to God in Christ. Amen for that? 
So Matthew's pointing us right back to Galilee where the ministry began and it will be there, not from Jerusalem, that these men will provide worldwide proclamation of this resurrection. But at this time, at this point in time, they're hiding out in fear. And Jesus, the angel says that Jesus will see them there. And then eighth, he says, he concludes with these words, I have told you so. That is the glorious messenger of God Almighty. I've told you this. This is true. God can't lie. I can't lie. I am a messenger of Almighty. This is true. I've told you this now. It's your time. It's your turn to do the telling. Go. So through the message of the angel, he's strengthening the faith of his people through the word. And he begins with this group of women. So God doesn't only perform miraculous signs at the resurrection. He, he gives an example. He, he gives an explanation of what is actually happening. That's how gracious he is. How many times did God say, this is going to happen, and then, and then there comes a miraculous sign or power, and then he says, this is what I've accomplished for you. So he doesn't merely speak to his people by divine events. He speaks to them by his word. He pre-explains it. He fulfills it by a great act, and then he post-explains it. Right? The great exodus. I'm going to deliver you from Egypt. He delivers them from Egypt. And then he reminds them, I have delivered you from Egypt. Right? The prophet said, a promised one will come. He will uphold the law. He will lay down his life. The promised one came. He upheld the law. He laid down his life. But I will vindicate my servant. I'll raise him up. He raised him up. And then he said, look, my son has risen. The angel comes. He has risen. 2,000 years later, he was promised to come. He came. He laid down his life. He raised up again. You see, what we need is no different than what these disciples need, beloved. Do you understand that? You are inundated day by day as you watch the news, as you listen to people. Lies. False gospels. Other Gospels, Jesus plus, right? This is a reminder of the same truth. This is the message. This is the messenger. This is the only truth that saves. So he pre-explains, he does the work, he post-explains. So he's strengthening the faith of his people in deed and in word. Think of how important that is, beloved. God expects us, not unlike these disciples, to trust in his providence, to trust in his promised word. And that's exactly what he wants to do for you this morning. And I pray that he does. I need this. My wife reminded me of this this week. I was whining about something. It was, a, it was doubt. Typically... If you doubt, there's oftentimes fear associated with it. So you doubt, you know, I don't need a slap on the back. I want to be reminded of the truth. Amen? This truth. Remember what he said? Remember what he did? Remember what he's doing? Remember what he did last week? That's what you want to hear. Notice, third point, validation of the promise. Verses 8 through 10, we see the response of the women. 
The women, we are told by Matthew, didn't walk. They ran to the disciples to bear witness of this good news. Now, their hearts were filled with fear and joy. It's very common. Two counterbalancing emotions. When the people of God are in the very presence of God, who wouldn't fear, and they have to be reminded, don't fear. This awesome God of heaven and earth. You stand in just the presence of an angel who reflects his glory. There's going to be some fear there, but yet comfort at the same time. So they're fearful. They're full of joy. They're, they're running to tell the disciples, and they're met by Jesus. Matthew doesn't even say that the women ran into Jesus. It says Jesus met them. Who's in charge, by the way? of your life. Who's in charge? Who's in providential control? Who's in sovereign control of all things? Oh, but our president. Oh, but our government. Who puts governing authorities in place? God does. We're called to submit to them, right? He's in control. So Jesus comes to these women. Immediately, they fall at his feet. And what do they do, beloved? There's only one response. It's called worship. They worship Jesus. And Matthew explicitly uses the word worship in connection with people worshiping Jesus three times in this gospel. The first time is in Matthew 2, verse 2, when wise men from the east came. The first group to worship Jesus, Gentiles. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees of the day, they had no clue. The Gentile, these Gentiles come, where is he to be born king of the Jews? Duh, um, you know, it says Bethlehem, but... And then the second time is here with these women, right after the resurrection. Jesus meets them on the road. They bow down, embrace his feet. They worship this king. And the third time that Matthew mentions uh, worshiping Jesus is in Matthew 28. When his disciples gather in Galilee, it says they worship Jesus there. Only God is to be worshiped, beloved. Amen? Only God is to be worshipped. So when anyone says to you, Jesus never claimed to be God, oh, yes, he did, and he received worship as God. For if he were not God, he would say, no, 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 just like the angel, don't worship me. Of course he receives worship because he is God Almighty. King of kings, the Lord of glory, the Alpha, the Omega, everything that was made was made by him, through him, for him. He is creator. And then Jesus commissions these women to be messengers to his messengers charged with the privilege and the responsibility of carrying this very important message to his bewildered, fearful disciples. The first words from Jesus to his disciples through the lips of the women are, tell my what? My brothers. Tell my brothers. Not, go tell those faithless thugs. (laughs) Right? Those blundering idiots. No, go tell my brothers. The God of the universe resurrected from the dead. He's been abandoned by these men in his hour of need. They flee to save their own skin back in the garden. And he says, tell my brothers. He doesn't even relate to them as sovereign God here. He relates to them as their elder brother. Amazing grace. So God is building the faith 
of these disciples to trust his word, to trust his providence, to believe in the resurrection. So he's building this glorious foundation of faith, beloved. He is rebuilding this morning, 2,000 years later, that foundation of faith that you already have. He's building upon it to trust. Because these men will go on and turn the world upside down, proclaiming what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The fulfillment of what we know as the Old Testament. Because that's all they had when they went and proclaimed this truth was what we know as the Old Testament. Their life, what they said, what they preached, what they wrote became the New Testament. Now, another thing that's interesting. On this morning, here's Jesus intimately involved with these faithful women. Intimately concerned with his 12 or 11 at this point because Judas Judas was dead. He's intimately involved. But yet there's a couple stray disciples walking together on a road. And you're familiar with it. It's Luke 24. On this same morning, after the event that we just read about, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Okay, we just read that from Matthew's account. If we move a few miles away to verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were what? Notice, kept from recognizing him. Kept. Why do my friends don't believe? Why does my family member not believe? Because their eyes are kept at this point from believing. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here, there in these days? Imagine asking Jesus that. He said to them, what things? What are you guys talking about? You know, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have what, beloved? Spoken. Do you this morning believe in the word of God? Do you trust in the promises of God? Do you trust in the scripture? Do you trust in his providence along with the living text? This is what we must remind one another of. These things. Was it not necessary, Jesus said, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses in all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted, 
as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. He vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did our hearts not burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the what? The scripture, the text, the Bible. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. Indeed. And he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Here he is raised for our justification. This is what he wants made known. This is what he wants his disciples to remember. These are the things written of me. It was promised. He had to suffer. I had to suffer. I did suffer. And I want you to go tell the disciples these very things. 2,000 years later, here's what he said he would do. This is what he has accomplished. This is why he has done what he has done. Amen? Amen. He's strengthening the faith of his people in deed and in word by the promises of Scripture and his providence. Providence means provision. Think about how important that is. We have to believe the same way. He's leaving them to trust his providence, to believe in his word. And they're going to have to, beloved, because they're going to be persecuted for this message. Because the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are what? Perishing. It's foolishness today, beloved, to those who are perishing. But it's our life breath. This is our life. This is our hope. So he's building this foundation for faith because saving faith, my friends, the only faith that saves is based upon the word of God, is based upon the promises of God, and is based upon the providence of the one true God. That is why the just shall live by faith. And faith is a gift. It is the God-given ability to trust in a future gifted to you that you can't see. You can't see it. Did you see creation? Did you see when God created everything? No, you did not. But you believe it. If you're a believer, you believe that he spoke it into existence. You believe that. You believe he said what he said and did what he did. You believe he, belie- he loves me perfectly. He's called me to himself. You want to be reminded of this truth. So true faith, as I close up, true faith, true belief causes conviction. You know how many people are in church this morning on Easter Sunday who don't believe? They, they might believe about Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the promises of God that pointed to the Son, fulfilled by the Son, made manifest through the life of the apostles. That Christ is the fulfillment. They're not committed to the truth declared, but faith produces a conviction that is committed to that truth which has been declared. That's the faith that saves. 
Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things what? Hoped for the conviction of things what? Not seen. Eternity's unseen. Guaranteed by the death of Christ. Validated by the resurrection of Christ. This is what your faith is based upon this morning. This reality. It's Christ alone. By faith you believe God created everything out of nothing, as I said. Everything out of nothing. That he sent his son for one sole purpose. To die for wretched sinners like me. And like you. Do you believe that this morning? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone this morning? Because the only way to walk with God, the only way to please God, the scripture says, is by faith. You can't be pleasing to God. You can't be reconciled to God. You can't receive forgiveness from God or walk with God. You will not enter the glory of God. That is eternal life apart from faith that saves. You can't. You must believe this by faith. You do not believe Jesus is one way to God. You do not believe that Jesus is a son of God. If you believe he is a son of God, this morning I declare to you he's the only begotten son of God, the only way to be saved. And you'll never please him unless you believe that. Listen to Hebrews. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Who seek him. No way to please him. What does it mean to put your faith in him? Does it mean mean to recite a catechism when you're 12? Does it mean to recite a confession when you're 15 or 30? Does it mean that you went to Bible camp and remembered numerous scriptures and you got a gold star next to your name with a lollipop? No, people can do that in unbelief. He who comes to God must believe that he is. That's a great statement. Okay? Which is to say, he who comes to God must believe that he is who he is and who he has declared to be. That's the only way to please God, is to place faith and trust in the Son of God who came and laid down his life and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you read the rest of that psalm, which is Psalm 22, you'll see that he would be vindicated in rule over his enemies. That's the conquering hero of our faith. The king of glory. Not just any God will do, beloved. Friends, family, visitors, not just some God will do, not just some notion about God will do, that's not sufficient to save you. Jesus is not a spoke, one of many spokes that leads to the hub of the one true God. He's not a son of God. He's not one way to God. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, said Jesus. He's it. This is the foundation of faith. So all of mankind, believing or not, will be judged based upon Christ, based upon his work, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. 
In saving faith, the only faith that saves is based upon the word of God, the promises of God fulfilled in scripture. Friends, this is the word of God. This is his word. This is the only way to be saved. And every Christian here, I encourage you to trust in the words of the living scripture and trust in the providence of God over your life. Remind one another of these things. Amen? If you're here this morning, and this is foreign to you, or you're maybe a CEO, Christian, or a Christmas and Easter only type of person, I pray today you believe this. You believe this. You believe in him. And that the Holy Spirit is here because he is. That he's here moving upon your heart to bring you to a place of fully embracing him. Who he is, what he's done, and how he's conquered. Bearing your sin. Forgiving you. Cleansing you. Removing your sin as far as the east is from the west. He paid for it on the cross. Validated by way of Sunday morning, the resurrection. Do you believe? Not about, but in. Today's the day. Today is the day of salvation. Don't let this moment pass without submitting yourself, your life, your thoughts, your trust, your faith to him alone. Because if you do, it is because he's now enabled you to see Enabled you to believe. Faith is a gift. Embrace him by faith. The scripture says you shall be saved. This Easter morning. Amen. Amen. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your son. We do thank you that uh, we can look back at what took place 2,000 years ago. And that which you were preparing your disciples for was foundational to how they would go on to lose their very own lives proclaiming the truth about you. That they did turn the world upside down. And because of the love and the power and the grace that you enabled them to proclaim a message of faith that 2,000 years later we're here believing this very same truth, the only truth that saves. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your providential care. And Lord, we are as faithless as those disciples on so many days, including myself. I confess to you my faithlessness. Increase in us, Lord, a greater amount of faith by your Holy Spirit. May we embrace the glories of our our Savior, his finished work, to proclaim this truth, to live this truth by faith, and to lovingly remind one another of these things. Lord, bless your church, bless your people. And Lord, bring anyone who may be listening online, anyone who is here this morning who is not saved, enable them to see, open their eyes that they may see. And we trust that you have, and that you are. And we believe it by faith, in Jesus' name.